Of the uh, relatively small number of Irish manuscripts that survive and are definitely datable to the 14th century, it's fair to say that the Book of Evina presents us with the most comprehensive overview of the types of poetry that were considered worthy of notice by the men of learning at the time. While we know that less than half of the original manuscript survives today, it's clear from comparing it with what we have, uh, what we have with the summary of contents made by uh, that anonymous hand that survives among the papers of Sir James Ware, that the amount of poetry in the manuscript today is probably close to the amount that was available and visible in the 17th century when that list was compiled. Not that the list is very detailed, but from the statement that the Lower Moor, as it is called, contained and from the fact that this does not include poems from the Dean Hanachus or Laura Lagarth or the Ogilv, now missing, which are mentioned separately in the summary, we can conclude this rough estimate of around 100 poems corresponds more or less to what survives today. And also that the amount of poetry in Ivana was enough to strike the eye of this early cataloger in the same way that it attracts our attention, our attention today. We can say then that though Ivana is far from <clears throat> falling within the narrow category of the manuscript anthology with which we are familiar from later times, there is still something new about this book that raises it above the specialist level of the Book of McGowan, for example, or the exclusively Shanachus remit of Ballymote. <clears throat> that new element is the free mixture and association of contemporary poetry and older poetry in a single book. This immediately brings up the question of scribal interest and participation in the selection of contents. Why? Because the dominant scribe, Adam Cusson or Av Cushin, is the unifying factor across the different types or subcategories of poetry present in the book, and it is in his hand that nearly all of these miscellaneous poems are recorded. In his hand, we have old Shanachus or genealogical poems, near contemporary Shanachus poems, narrative poems, and of course, some of the bardic poetry contained in the manuscript. The poetry that gives the book its contemporary flavour, according to R.A. Bernach in his deceptively simple yet very perceptive Thomas Davis lecture of half a century ago. We have now passed the point where we think of Irish scribes as passive, disinterested functionaries. We now regard them rightly, as, and especially the men who made these books in the late medieval period, as men of learning in a very deep sense. As I said in my talk on the Book of Ballymote, in making these books, they were merely doing so as an extension of their work as scholars. <clears throat> and that being the case, we're entitled, I believe, to look more closely at the work of Av Cushin, and in the context of the subject of this paper, at the nature of the poetry transmitted by him. This will be necessarily quite selective today. As a preliminary to this, I think it might be no harm to mention some features of Cushin's script to help us identify his hand with certainty but also, and by the way, to show how he is an object le lesson in how irregular and inconsistent scribes can be, particularly over a big project like this must have been. His letter forms have been described very eloquently by McAllister, and this has been added to by William O'Sullivan, whose major contribution, as has been mentioned a number of times already, was to redefine the division of hands in the manuscript. Both agree on the distinctive uh, count for etta, uh, <coughs> consisting of a, a double a virgula with a matching downward scroll on each side as being diagnostic. By way of a footnote, I may mention if that's vaguely familiar to you, that was when we were rejigging the publications of the School of Celtic Studies many years ago. Uh, we selected that as a, 
as a, a logo. And when you sing it that way, um, Of Kushin has been immortalized. And the problem is that Of Kushin <coughs> also makes use of a, of a hookless uh, Virgili on some, on some pages, uh, but also that this sign is used by, uh, is also used by the scribe, just designated D by a Sullivan, even if they are uh, inclined, in, 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 slightly more inclined than in Kushin's <coughs> hand, and the hooks tend to be more closed. This is a colored example. In passing, it must be observed that uh, that scribe D makes seemingly universal use of the inverted uh, semicolon as a punctuation mark, something we normally associate with a period a little bit earlier. There are other diagnostic elements in Cushin's script. One is the stepped-back positioning of the I in the AIR compendium, but he also implies, uh, employs the more regular um, <coughs> AIR compendium with the I located at the top. In fact, the top location seems regular in later work by him in the manuscript. And here is an example of the two together in, 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 uh, in a short space of each other at the beginning and end there. But if we come across the first form, that is with the, back to, with the step back, uh, I, I think we can say for certain that it, that it is Cushin's hand. <coughs> so too with his August symbol, which has a near vertical 90 degree shaft and a distinctive light tail uh, at the bottom. But again, this doesn't mean that he doesn't use the, uh, the more regular symbol. This ampersand is also <coughs> employed by him um, <coughs> in a distinctive and elegant etc. compendium, which occurs uh, throughout. Again, he can use the more uh, conventional form, as you see up there on the top left, and of course spell the whole the word out plainly when, when, when he requires. <coughs> so what we see here is that, uh, again, if we find the first form, the that form there, etc. We can be pretty sure that this is uh, that this is Cushing. All of this, I suppose, is a caution against being too absolute in our judgments regarding the micro-identification of hands. William O'Sullivan said of Cushing that he wrote a large hand lacking in elegance, with uh, with very mediocre initials, sometimes lifted straight out of the Latin manuscripts of the day, complete with flourish penwork. McAllister was a little kinder, saying that he writes neatly, but in a solid block of writing, uh, tiring to read and impossible to skim. <laughs> I think uh, it's all impossible to skim. Like O'Sullivan, McAllister detected outside influences on Cushing's script in the resemblance that it bore to the Gothic script of the contemporary world outside. For my own part, and just to give a shout out for all of Cushing, I find nothing to... Uh, really inelegant about his hand, but then we have the benefits of digitization, where we can observe and admire the calligraphy at very close quarters. In addition, it's clear that at times he was having problems with his materials. Um, his ink, for example, as on this slide here, where it fades three times in the course of one page. The quality of the vellum itself is less than optimal, and it's mentioned by Kathleen Mulcrone in her, in her excellent catalogue uh, description. Uh, <clears throat> this leads to situations uh, like this on, on Folio 99, where, due to its thinness, the skin suffered severe holding when it was stretched. And when AC came to write on the verso following the near illegible hand of one of the Dean Hanifah scribes, the verso was exhibiting serious bleed through from the recto uh, because of the thinness of the vellum, leading to the whole lower section of column of column B there uh, being being abandoned. In many respects, of uh, Cushin is your archetypal scribe. He writes in different styles. He collaborates with other scribes uh, working on the manuscript. 
see this in particular in 112 Richter, where he inserts a short uh, Dean Hennick's poem there, marked uh, left and right, bottom, bottom of A, top of B. A short Dean Hennick's poem between the work of two of the main Dean Hennick's scribes. The third text here is of interest because of Cushin takes over midway through the poem that is on the beginning of the verso of this of this uh, of this uh, page, um, <coughs> which he also manages to fit uh, two further poems. The second of which, a poem on, on Lochriach, he miscalculates and has to go into the lower margin to complete because he wants to start the next text at the top of a rector. One could talk forever about his style and idiosyncrasies, but one point that is certainly of interest is that, as mentioned, uh, McAllister and O'Sullivan both detected outside influences on his script and decoration, respectively. This is interesting because it contributes to our growing understanding of the context of book production in 14th century Ireland. That is, that the worlds of the secular school and the monastic school and the different books that they produced were not the parallel universes that we might imagine. They did, of course, share the common, same common tradition, but in addition to that, it doesn't make sense that they should in some way have remained secluded from each other, no matter how much the nature of their work had diverged post-1200. So it seems when we talk, to me, when we talk about the late medieval tradition of manuscript making, we're talking about a tradition that was influenced by and very probably enjoyed the participation of scholars from the friars and the abbeys of the New Orders. The subject matter of the manuscripts themselves, possibly none more so than Ivana, is the greatest argument for this. And sometimes this is supported through the hints that we get in the paleography and the decoration of a given, a given book. Hints like this, an exclamation mark, used as a line filler by Av Kushin on one solitary occasion. <coughs> a punctuation mark that is only coming into use in continental manuscripts, according to those who know, at a time contemporary with Ivana itself, second half of the 14th century. If Ivana was a century older, we'd be saying that this was an influence from the printed tradition. And this brings us finally to the single outstanding scribal feature that confirms his hand, that's of Cushin's hand, when all else fails, and that, is, and that is unique to him in this manuscript. This is the, his devotion to the hyphen. This is the line end word divider, which, as you can see, is slanted. I hope, I hope you can see it. It's slanted. <coughs> A type of hyphen become, that became popular in British and European manuscripts from the 12th century onwards. There are some examples in Leinster. In the Annals of Inish Fallon, the hyphen first appears in, uh, in, uh, in hand 24, 1175 to 81, and becomes more or less regular thereafter. Cushin's use of the hyphen is universal in his formal work, and because of the imperatives imposed by the layout of poetry, somewhat more in evidence in those texts than in prose. Sometimes the, these hyphens are barely visible to the naked eye and only come up in the high-res solution digital images, but in many cases they're perfectly clear. To date, I've not observed a hyphen in use in such profusion by any other scribe, with one exception, and that is Gilla Isamakirvishik. Being able to identify <coughs> of Cushin's contribution to the Book of Iwana is important, <coughs> as I propose to look at, uh, only at poems inscribed in the book by him. With regard to poetry in particular, we're allowed to factor the scribal personality of of Cushin into the selection and transmission of poetry by virtue of the fact that, with the exception of four and a half poems, uh, on one of which he we've seen he collaborates with another scribe, all the standalone poetry in the manuscript was copied by him. By standalone, I mean poems longer than ten quatrains, anything less is generally a, line, uh, a filler item, not immediately connected to any canonical prose texts, Laura de Gart, for example, or poetry sequence, the Jean Hanachas sequence. Though in the latter case, Cushin does some mopping up, as it were, uh, by the provision of three additional Jean Hanachas poems. 
Throughout the manuscript, we see sporadic attempts at ordering poems according to principles of theme and content, as in the case of the Gofrio Cleta, a bardic sequence, followed by Dona Chamor and Golabrida, or the prophecy poems <coughs> on folio 61 to 4. We should also mention a different ordering principle, uh, briefly evident in the three poems beginning at it, on folios 155 to 156. There is the overarching loose ordering of poems whereby some of the heavy Shanachist poems are found in proximity to the genealogical sections at the front of the manuscript and the more exotic Shanachist poems occurring together at the end of the book as it is now. So that the randomness of the selection may not be quite that, though it is clear from parts of the manuscript that there, that there were lapses of time involved between the insertion of items where differences of ink and script show Cushin stopping and resuming, perhaps after sourcing another item uh, for insertion. Overall, however, the standalone poems are just that, and of the 88 of these that I, I reckon in the, in the book, uh, as I said, all but four and a half uh, were written by Av, written into the manuscript by Av Kushin. And this is a considerable amount of poetry. The fact that it extends from the beginning to the end of the manuscript as we have it today, across the boundaries of different genres and metrical forms, covering pretty much all themes that we associate with this poetry, from Middle Irish to the Bardic eras, means that, uh, to my mind, Av Kushin is an important figure, who can lay claim to being the first true eclectic anthologizer of Irish poetry of the late medieval period. It means that we can take uh, Ivana as, as a unit and not as a collection of individual uh, uh, choirs, as the Foyalan Makavon contribution might initially suggest. Av Kushin is very much the main hand and the main man, so that an examination of his hand gives us an ideal platform from which to talk about poetry in the Book of Ivani. And though I'm talking here about miscellaneous poems in the manuscript, they can be categorized still in a, in a, in a, in a very general way, even if they're not strictly assembled according to these uh, categories. Lengthy, in the first place, lengthy genealogical or synchronistic poems, metrical lists and litanies. Um, <clears throat> might also include the prophetic material mentioned earlier, including uh, the Bardic poems or the near Bardic poems, the Cahal Kriziarago Conachuish from the end of the 12th century. Then we have general gnomic material <coughs> on the, uh, <coughs> so the rights of, of kingship and so forth, and perhaps we can include Guffrey Foon's Mazdi for the, for the facet there on, on language uh, uh, in that category as well. Narrative poetry, both biblical and secular, and then uh, religious devotional material such as Kedar Comfort and so, and so forth, and also the ten religious poems from the Bardic Dandil era. And this gives some indication of the variety to be found in the poetry. But of course, these categories could, are largely our own categories, if you like, they're artificial. <clears throat> and if we implied the term Shanachas to everything, we'd be near to an understanding of the mind of the compiler. In his edition of the poem and praise of <coughs> Cahal, one of the poems and praise of Cahal Kroviarg, beginning, Tarnigan Shawig Shil Nail. Among the early manuscript sources for poems in Don of the beginning of the early modern Irish period is the Book of Iwana, which contains two poems that were probably composed by Gilabrida Albanach. Far more extensive in it, however, are compositions which on linguistic and metrical grounds may reasonably be assigned to the Middle Irish period. Some of these are religious in content, some historical. Here's a, here's a rough breakdown of the dating situation of the miscellaneous poetry in Iwana. And I emphasize very rough, because this, this may look scientific, but it actually is not. <laughs> Linguistic dating criteria for poetry because of the, uh, sorry, from the early material, I, I've been guided by the opinions of editors where editions of poems exist. 
the earliest poems, one of the earliest poems must be the famous and among the latest poems, of course, by Sean O'Dougan. It's impossible to generalize about, generalize about other manuscripts until this sort of work is done and to be useful to have data from other manuscripts that we could compare to it. But even in the later tradition of the 17th and 18th centuries, <coughs> this is what one might expect from non-specialist manuscripts, a preponderance of contemporary or near-contemporary material and then a decreasing quantity as one goes back in time. That is sort of a logical pro progression. We can try to refine this data to some extent. Doing so, of course, while it is a useful exercise, is also a frustrating one. Linguistic dating criteria for poetry, because of the nature of the art, will rarely yield a critical mass on which anything more specific than a spread of dates can be suggested. Thus, we get datings like between 11, uh, 1050 and 1150 and so forth. We might also mention that the transition period between late Middle Irish and early modern Irish has led to uncertainty even as to how to present material composed at this time. For instance, Professor O'Keeve, in his edition of the poem just referred to, which is in the meter he describes as the old Glaucus of Divi, states <coughs> that in editing it he had the choice of normalizing to early modern Irish orthography or to that of Middle Irish, but chose the latter because of some Middle Irish linguistic features in the poem. Nor does the situation improve when we arrive in the early modern period, because <clears throat> without a specific point of historical reference, many of the poems that are clearly early modern cannot be dated within less than a 200-year period. An indicative dating statement from this period is in James Carney's edition of Cotton uh, from this manuscript, <clears throat> where he says the poem was written at, at the latest in the 14th century and is probably a century or more older. We could say the same of many more texts, and this is why the final bar in this church is, is so large, and that for the 13th century is so reduced. We might summarize it if we knew the real story that the 13th century share would be, would be higher. One might think that authorship ascriptions would be of assistance in clarifying dating issues, but of the poems that we're dealing with here, less than a quarter, that is 19, are headed with ascriptions of authorship, nine of which are, are, uh, belong to the Bardic Dondiro poems. <coughs> There are a, a further uh, 14 poems that contain internal claims of authorship in their, in, in their, generally in their closing quatrains, a device directed in some cases at least at lending authority and authenticity to a composition in a fairly recognizable medieval way. Some of these, of course, are, are maybe genuine, such as ascriptions to Gullam Ahuda, to uh, Odin, or the poem, uh, or the poem beginning Moedim Gach Math Amoras to Sean O'Dougan, but others, such as those to Makrisha, um, Quilt and so forth, or the description of the early, an early modern poem to Cormac MacQuill 9, uh, are to be taken less seriously. This tendency to omit ascriptions or not to ascribe specific authorship to mainly Shanachas poems reminds us again of Bergen's <coughs> statement regarding the non attribution of prose texts in Irish to named authors, and he says that prose is common property. We might extend this axiom to cover also the case of many Shanachas poems. Where apart from the work of masters and teachers, such as Kinev the Hartagon, Golanov, Odin, Sean O'Dougain, and so forth, many poems are, as it were, common property. <coughs> Turning to meters, we can see the situation is largely what we would expect from a mainly Shanachas book that contains a high proportion of contemporary or near-contemporary material. Loose forms of Devida account for 60% or over 60% of the poems. The Don Dira poems are mainly accounted for by the Bardic. Uh, religious poems, <coughs> but there are exceptions that may give us an insight into the workings of poets at this time, as will be mentioned later on. All these poems are in the hand of uh, of, of Kushin. <coughs> in 
In the case of many manuscripts with regard to textual history of their contents, it's possible today to adopt a 180 degree viewpoint looking back at earlier versions, forwards to later copies or to relative copies, and sometimes comparing uh, contemporary versions with each other. This should also be possible ultimately for Ivana, but for immediate purposes and I'm remaining, I propose to devote some attention to one of those uh, perspectives, and that is the contemporary element. Taking a thematic approach, this material can lead to interesting views of the way in which some of the poems were perceived. For instance, there's a concentration, as mentioned already, of prophetic material written down <coughs> by of Kuoshin in Gathering 12, where we have creations such as Bwila Big, Big Day, Bwila Irlatha, Bwila Belchoin. These <coughs> and other poems <coughs> provide a spectrum of references to historic events which attract the scrutiny of scholars for the chronologically latest reference as a means of dating the piece. In the case of one among this cluster of prophetic poems, that beginning beginning rail, which in its own way is linked to poems elsewhere in the manuscript concerning kingship, its editor Eleanor Dot acknowledged that there are layers of text in the poem, which meant that while 11th century sources formed a core of the poem in the form in which it appears in Ivana, it might be as late as 1296. In support of the theory of textual layers, not cited a feature of multiple closures in a poem, 14 in number in this particular one, on which she made the, the comment, in attempting to determine the date of our poem, we have to take into account that it is not so much a composition as a compilation. The repetition of the initial word at the end of so many stanzas suggests that the original text may have been increased again and again, perhaps by different authors, probably by different authors, actually. So this small-themed collection of half a dozen poems in Iwana serves to <coughs> indicate contemporaneity of some of the uh, <clears throat> ostensibly older material in, in Ivana. And also, it seems to me that when we talk of poetry outside of the Don Deer repertoire, we're talking of a poetry that is not necessarily static, but very much like the prose tradition admits of deliberate additions and accretions. And this fluidity imparts to the, works, uh, to the work of Av Kushin, the dominant scribe, a sense of being an eyewitness to the textual process that he is recording, and in some way that I cannot define a participant uh, in that process himself, quite possibly. It should be noted that the grouping of prophecy texts together or in close proximity to each other was not just determined by their immediate thematic similarity. They belonged to the wider context of the collection of religious poetry to which uh, Kushin gave the general heading at the top of 56 verse, so sequitur the home of Diagachta. As already mentioned, this collection of religious poems includes work by the great bardic poets of the preceding century, Donachamur Odala and Gullabride, as well as featuring in pole position, as it were, a unique record of the work of Guthrie O'Clader, whom we must assume to have been a local Ivana poet. This general categorization explains why in the midst of the prophecy poems in Luce Devi, we get an extraordinary long religious Don Dirk Bardic poem, Murer Koch, Kumuin and Chizud, which extends to 116 quadrants. It suggests a view of Bardic religious verses representing continuity from moral material of an earlier period. It also points up the real function of uh, the contemporary or near-contemporary bardic verse in Ivana. It could be said that the two, the two Kahal Krivyar poems, both of which are in Old Glaucus of Devi, are included not as samples of the new art, but for their prophetic content, as, as was noted by O'Keeve. While the remaining bardic poem, Thoth Ainit, which will be the subject of the next paper, with its concentration of, ge of genealogical content is very much consonant with all the other uh, genealogical material in, in verse in the, in, the, in, in the manuscript. It's of interest that just uh, 
and I don't want to cut in on, on Michal's step, but it's of interest that this poem is one of the few of the miscellaneous category that was not written in the manuscript by Av Kushin, and is the only other occurrence of Fuelon's hand, not noted by O'Sullivan, outside of the gathering beautifully written by him for the bishop. The inclusion by him of this poem points to Fuelon as perhaps uh, a, a particular custodian of Ikawa material, but in this instance his writing is anything but beautiful. The page is unruled, and the whole thing has, has a very informal appearance, as though he was doing off Cushin a favour, to some extent, by furnishing this poem for him. It can hardly be said to form part of any extra material intended for the bishop. Taking the contemporary bardic material in Ivana together, then we see that its inclusion is not due to any innovatory impulse on the part of the maker of the book, but rather that it accords with very much with the ethos of the Shanachis manuscript. Perhaps when we view <coughs> the dichotomy between Shanachi and poet, the distinction is not really between uh, Don Dirach and more relaxed metrical forms between Shanachis and praise poetry. Given the metrical and thematic evidence of Ivanit, it could be said that it continues and maintains the core interest in Shanachis as opposed to secular bardic praise poetry, which is in very short supply in the book. To return to dissociation and collocation of themes as providing an insight into the function and functionings of poetry in Ivanit, we turn to material in the manuscript that relates to Muel Hachnel or Muel Hachland, King of Meath, who died in 1022, and whom the genealogists regarded as the last High King of Ireland without opposition. It attracts attention because, as you know, a poem uh, lamenting Melachlan's death survives uniquely, albeit as a filler item in, in a contemporary manuscript that, that, that by Arvo Fiorin, and that was edited by James Carney. In Uvina too, we find a poem referring to this event. It begins a vida ismas the bomber. But while Carney believed the poem in G3 to be genuine uh, early 11th century composition, there is nothing in the Uvina poem that would suggest a date um, earlier than the 12th century. The poem is composed in Old Glaucus of Raniach Boer, consists of 17 or 17 18 verses, depending on how you arrange it, and it laments the present state of the author of Meath and of Ireland compared with that during the reign of Melachlan. What brings this composition into, contem into contemporary focus is the fact that a second version of the poem is found later in the manuscript, even though the catalogue says it isn't, it actually it is. And this version shows signs of ad adaptation and reuse of the first version. This, this second version has multiple closures of the type noted by Eleanor Knott, a feature mentioned already, familiar to us from other medieval Irish poetry, betokening the end of one section of a poem and the beginning of another, and sometimes perhaps a sign of collaboration between poets, demonstrably so in the case of one poem from the Book of Fermoy. In any case, it is clear that some of the verses that we have to do, in some of the verses we have to do with early modern accretions uh, to the poem, perhaps in a way that we can see accretions to poems in Fianigach or uh, maybe even Dean Hanifas uh, traditions. This might be the result of an exercise in a school where students might have been asked to add appropriate verses to an earlier poem. That compositions on the subject of Milhachtan were being composed at this time has been well known since Colm O'Loughlin's uh, paper on poets on the Battle of Clontarf many years ago. One of the compositions included in his list of poems related to Clontarf, but not, uh, not contemporary, which is, uh, is another poem on Milhachtan beginning Mwil Hachlan, Shinsher Gaibo, preserved by Michal Akleta in two manuscripts, but also found in Ivana. That poem recounts the various families that were represented at Clontarf, including Brian Borov and his sons, but, uh, but not as allies of Brian, but as part of the king's uh, Munter, the king being Mwil Hachlan. The point of interest for people of Ivana persuasion is, of course, the verses on the Ivana and their neighbours, the Ivyachachaina, 
will receive uh, special mention. Even more interesting is that with the exception of a single half quatrain, this poem is, this poem is in Bandir, pretty much, demonstrating that it is indeed near contemporary with Ibanez, and further supporting the proposition that Bandir was not necessarily the sole preserver of the poets who had devised it at the end of the 12th century, and certainly showing that there is more to Bandir in Ibanez than the religious poems in the later sequence. <coughs> this serves to bring the contemporaneity of some of the poetry in Ibanez into better focus, all the more so perhaps when, just as in the case of the prophecies in the Cahal Krogyard poems, we can identify the different strata of related um, material uh, elsewhere in the elsewhere in the uh, in the manuscript, and the Milachlan poems connect with the Dean Hanachis on two occasions uh, through compositions by by Kuhn or Lothkoy. The perspective that Ivana uh, gives us of contemporary poetry and the use of Don Dirk outside of what regard as a strictly bardic context is reinforced when we look at another poem. This is Kruos Konacht Klanasovan, where it falls victim to the poor state of the vellum. It's abandoned after this and it's, it's, it's started up again uh, on the age of 90 fragment and then finished off in a, in a, on, on a, a further folio that still survives in Ivana. It's a poem on the descendants of Southern Salgwid, and in particular Sean Mac Conachur, head of Clan of Arda Vivania, the branch of the family that we find in the genealogy is associated with Muina Hassan, Valavik of Arden, East Galway, and that do not appear, uh, despite their name, to have been associated with poetry around this stage anyway. This poem is heavy in genealogical content, and yet it, uh, content, and yet it is a praise poem, and should be considered as belonging to the Bardi canon, though this hasn't happened to date. Another point of interest is the meter in which it is composed. This is just a transcript of the first quatrain, but you can see that it's 7273, or as transpires from subsequent quatrains, 7x, 7x plus 1, Devada, in other words, but rather a particular variety of Devada, that is Devada Nimrin, as Murphy calls it, Devada with rhymes all around. Here, the metrical pattern of n-rhyme is repeated in the two lateral, resulting in an, in an extra rhyme between the first and the and, uh, third, and the second and the fourth lines, respectively in addition to the usual rules of alliteration, internal rhyme and syllable count being observed. It's a complicated meter, rare in the Bardic era, and one that is maintained here in Don Dierk over 64 quatrains, making it something, I suppose, of a tour de force. Another contemporary element involving poetry and its transmission in Iwana is the possible interaction with fellow scribes and men of learning within the confines of, oh, sorry, outwit the confines of Iwana itself. For example, we have uh, only two poems ascribed to Sean O'Dougain, one at, uh, at the heading, one, one internally, though we know that an, another poem, Fidvil Kovra Clan and which has no ascription, uh, is ascribed to him in H27. And uh, one supposes that there are other compositions in the manuscript, surely, that have, were composed by him or by members of his school, but that went without, went without attribution. And he was someone, I, I imagine, that most of which one. Uh, Kushi must have been uh, acquainted to some to some extent. We might make the same claim for claim for connections with Golisimak Vishik, but I wouldn't like to base that merely on shared paleographical feature referred to earlier. Uh, Ivana and the Book of Lekin share uh, eight of their miscellaneous poems, which is a, a small enough number when you when you when you think of it really. Uh, we can look at, at uh, we can look at one poem in particular that's Aiksha Banvanamyan. Which, based on the Lekin version, is commonly thought to be the work of Gullis himself, so very contemporary with uh, with Ivana. The description is based uh, <coughs> on the final invocatory quatrain in Lekin, which is up there. You can see it there. 
the six-line concluding verse with its pun on Gullivig Day is the basis for the description uh, to Makir Vishig. When we look at the corresponding verse in Ivana, however, it appears as though the Lekin version is a modification of what is preserved uh, in Ivana. And though the late uh, Tomas of Concanning, uh, noting this discrepancy, observed that the copy in Ivana contained a concealment of the ascription by omission of the third and fourth lines of the final stanza, um, it is in fact possible to look at it the other way around and to look at the two verses uh, and regard Ivana as possibly representing a plausible text from which the Lekin verse could have been reformulated. And this leads us to wonder um, about the wider relationship between the two texts. And when we do this examination, what we find is that there are a number of significant variants, quatrain to quatrain, with the weight of authority, I would think, appearing to lie with, uh, with Lekin against Ivana. There's just, just some examples from the early quatrains there. The question is, working on the assumption that the poem is near contemporary with Ivana and Lekin, how is it possible for a poem to, to develop significant variants within that narrow time frame? As the regnal list in the poem ends plausibly enough with the reign of Rodeo Kunkur, perhaps the poem is not, after all, contemporary with the manuscript. The variation in the <coughs> signature final verse might, uh, might then be uh, put down to a clever reformulation or revision by Gorisa. Or could it mean that the mechanism for circulation of this type of material may not always have been the written medium? And that transcription via dictation uh, might have been an alternative, as we know it was in the case of trans some translation literature. Before we leave, uh, and before I conclude the paper, we'd be remiss not to advert to the best example of learned interaction and textual exchange in Ivana. This is, of course, the copy of one scribe's composition by another. That is, the copy of Feuillon's poem um, by, uh, of Cochin in Gathering 9, just before the insertion of Feuillon's work as Gathering 10. The positioning of this poem is clearly prompted by two factors. One is the proximity of Feuillon's Cadena, which will immediately follow this folly, as I said, and will open with the remarkable ornate, remarkable ornate A, and the synchronistic text on the kings of Ireland, Greece, and Rome, beginning um, out of primum, uh, primus uh, pater uh, foot. That text is followed by a sequence of hagiographical texts interspersed with short items on mothers from Irish and biblical history and mothers of saints. The second factor is the proximity of the popular Banhanachas, written down by Av Kushin himself, which consists of the prose and, and verse, and the verses we know beginning of Eamahatimamina. Fuelan's poem, one of only a small number to bear an inscription, begins Oz of Arnahavila and is a poem on women, wives and mothers from biblical tradition up to quarter and twenty and from Greek tradition from that point to the end. And it is at this point, facing the opening of Feuillon's gathering that of Cushin signs his name for the one and only time. There's deliberation here, the conscious arrangement of material and a clear association between these two men. There's also the fact that Feuillon's poem is in Dondir throughout its 57 quatrains. As with other Shanachas compositions and strict meter in Ivana, it shows, I think, a more complete picture of the creation and transmission of poetry this time. And of course, the use of strict meter is something that will continue among Shanachas families, such as the Ivoyal Khonra and the Clown Vodzi, right down to the end of the tradition in the 17th century. And I suppose, curiously, the result of our uh, travels with uh, Av Kushin is a shift of focus from him to Fuelan Makavonishkil. Poet, scribe, artist probably, confidant of the bishop for whom he prepares the most glorious gathering in the book, yet in other circumstances carelessly rushing off a poem to Ocala, probably at the behest of Av Koshin, and you can hear Av Koshin saying thanks a bunch, and possibly revealing the workshop scriptorium environment in which the book was created. 
At the very least, it provides a lot of empirical information about what about that most learned of people, the late medieval Irish scholar. If in summary, there's one thing that we can say about Lowry Omana, is this, that such is the variety of poetry that was brought together in this book, much of it by Olaf Cushing, that it would be possible through an anthology of that poetry alone to give a modern reader a very good picture of poetry in the 14th century. And that's not a claim that we can make for any other manuscript from this era. Brilliant, Margaret.